0: Have you ever heard of the word collywobbles? Collywobbles. Yes, (laughs) you're right. And let me give you a definition. Stomach pain or queasiness or intense anxiety or nervousness, especially with the stomach. So (laughs) what does collywobbles have to do with the Drop-In CEO podcast? I'll tell you. Collywobbles. Remember that word. Holly Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous. Author, Moshe Cohen. Now, <laughs> this is a book you need to read because it's not just about negotiation and mediation, and you can check the box and say, that's not for me. But it is so much more. It is about emotion and feeling and just your basic ability to deal with what you perceive are confrontational situations, and you don't have to have collywobbles. Let's listen to our conversation.
1: So I've been teaching negotiation for about 25 years. And over this time, I've come to the conclusion that people need to learn strategies. They need to learn skills. They need to learn models and frameworks. They need to practice and prepare. But ultimately, when people actually go to negotiate, very often something gets in the way and they get in their own way and can't negotiate effectively. They panic, they get nervous, they get excited. So very often it's something on the emotional level that blocks them from being able to use all of those skills and strategies that they've learned. And I realized that the longer I taught, (laughs) the more I was incorporating concepts from emotional intelligence into my teaching. That the biggest difference between success and failure wasn't knowing what to do, it was being able to do it when you needed to.
0: Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I am excited to join you again and with my guest on the Drop-In CEO podcast, where I get to speak to amazing leaders and bring their insights to you. And I promise you, you're going to really enjoy this episode. So if you like this programming, please subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends so we can continue to bring you great programming. And it is my honor today to share the mic with my fantastic guest, Moshe Cohen. Moshe is the author of Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous, a recent book that brings together negotiation and emotional intelligence strategies. And he has been teaching negotiation, leadership, conflict resolution, and organizational behavior as founder of the Negotiation Table since 1995 and as a senior lecturer at Boston University's Questrom School of Business, where he has taught since 2000. He has worked with thousands of students as well as companies and organizations all over the world, and he is a mediator who has worked to resolve hundreds of matters and also coaches executives, managers, and individuals on negotiating more effectively. And he has written numerous articles. And I know I was reading everything before we got on here. And he has been on many videos, interviews, and broadcasts. He has studied physics at Cornell University and has a master's in electrical engineering from McGill University specializing in robotics. And after working robotics for over a dozen years, he completed his MBA from Boston University and fell in love with negotiation and mediation. Moshe, it is my honor to welcome you onto the Drop-In CEO podcast.
1: Thank you, Deb. lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you. And a little shout out to a mutual colleague of ours, Christine Spira. She was the one that introduced me to Moshe. And I am grateful for the opportunity because for my listeners, the topic of negotiation has never been discussed before. I put it on par with public speaking, something that is just, I find, sometimes quite challenging. So Moshe, I would love for you to unpack this. Tell us a little bit about yourself personally, your journey, and the work that you're doing now.
1: So I'll start by giving you the 50 cent tour. So I did in fact start off in physics. I'm one of those kids who did well in science in high school and thought, hey, this would be fun to do. Only to realize when I went to Cornell that physics in the university level is a completely different animal. So after doing physics, I decided not to stay in it. I went into what seemed easier at the time. I went into electrical engineering. I was an engineer for a couple of years, decided if I was going to be an engineer, I should have a degree in it. So I went up to McGill in Montreal, got a master's in electrical engineering, did specialize in robotics. And then I came down to Boston and I worked in the robotics field for the next 11 years, worked in the space telerobotics field. So I worked on the shuttle arm and the station arm and other things that flew in space and had moving parts, enjoyed what I was doing, but I found that I was moving more towards the people side of the projects, not the computers and robot side of things. So to that end, I thought I'd go into management. And not knowing anything about management, I went back to school. I went to Boston University, got my MBA, and discovered that I don't like managing anything and that I'm not a great manager. So uh, that was money well spent. But actually, it was money well spent because what happened was I fell in love with my negotiation class. And in particular, we did a segment on mediation. And I realized that I was always meant to be a mediator. So I got some additional training. And in '95, I became a mediator. And since then, I've mediated about 500 cases in all sorts of different areas. About a year after I started mediating, people asked me to start teaching. So I started teaching classes first in mediation, then negotiation, and then added other topics as I went along. And then in 2000, Boston University invited me back in to teach. So since 2000, I've also been teaching at BU. So it's been an interesting road.
0: Now, I am curious, while you took a very impressive road from science into engineering, into management, and then finally into this area of mediation negotiation, was there ever something in your past in growing up that that was already a core competency or something that you already did and you just had to discover it through the education path? I'm curious.
1: You know, that's an interesting question. Growing up, I always thought of myself as the eye of the storm in the sense that, Whenever I was around people, they seemed to fight less, and whenever there was conflict, you know, and I'd enter into the scene, somehow things would calm down. And I had no words to it. I didn't, you know, I did think of myself as that I have the storm, but I had no real language to put around that. And is why when I did my first mediation case in graduate school, I remember going to my professor and going, "This is who I've been my whole life. How do I do this professionally?" And that was the start of a, a big change in my life.
0: You know, I'm just going to pause there because that may have been, I would say, one of my aha moments. I was a highly creative child writing doing plays, singing, arts and crafts, and then sometimes life took us, I went in the STEM area as well. And, you know, it's one of those things you do well, you get your bonuses, you're elevated because of it. And then something changes. It's like, I like working with people. (laughs) I like being able to elevate them and get them to perform. Hence why I started developing my skills in the area of leadership, negotiation conflict resolution it uh, sometimes helps you get better results i find
1: yeah no i think we're inherently multifaceted and when i work with my students i encourage them to not think of themselves so monolithically if they're studying x that doesn't mean that they'll do x their whole lives or that while they're doing x they can't do y and z as well so you know i i think that what you did and what i did is just discover another big part of ourselves that mm. we hadn't focused on and that eventually turned out to be the major part of what we wanted to do.
0: So that's okay. It's just part of the journey. Now, I don't want to assume that people understand the difference. Could you just qualify mediation and negotiation and what what are the outcomes of those?
1: So negotiations happen anytime you and another person need to make a decision and you don't start off in the same place. So, you know, humans have differences. Negotiation is the process by which we resolve those differences. Some negotiations are more about creating opportunity. So, for example, in a sales kind of situation, some negotiations are more about resolving conflict. So potentially, let's say, in a legal situation. Mediators are neutral third parties that assist negotiators to come to an agreement. So a mediator facilitates other people's negotiations. Oh, wow. And done well, the mediator is not only neutral in the sense that They don't take sides, but the mediator should actually be indifferent as to whether the parties come to an agreement. Because once the mediator cares whether the parties come to an agreement, the mediator will try to push the parties towards agreement. So as a mediator, I really don't care if the parties come to an agreement. I'm going to do my best to create the kind of conversation that allows them to come to an agreement if that's what they choose. But it's still their choice whether they come to an agreement or not. And it's not my life not my consequences. So I really leave all that up to them.
0: I'm going to go in a different direction. So just everybody knows, I always prepare for these interviews. I have tons of questions, but I would love to go in a different direction because I'd love to know a little bit, I mean, just paint a picture for us. Maybe you can kind of make it anonymous of a situation where you had two negotiators in the room, you mediated. It was a challenging situation. It didn't look like they were going to get to the right result. But through your mediation, you were able to help them get to the place that they wanted to get.
1: So I'll give an example. This is a workplace example. These are two researchers at a uh, university who had been working together for almost two decades. And over time, their research had diverged, and one of them decided he wanted to move on and found his own lab without the other partner. Hmm. And the other partner was offended and betrayed and hurt by this. And it took on a lot of the characteristics of what you'd see in a divorce. They had to divide property. They had to divide graduate students. They had to divide postdocs. And yet they also had a lot of intellectual property that they shared and some continued research that they would have to do together. There was so much hurt feeling around that table that my role was really to help them get to a place where they could have a conversation and make decisions. And it took some time, but they did.
0: Wow. Okay. This is absolutely fascinating to me. You know, I'll tell you, I do these interviews because I am looking to learn something new and pick up a few tips because I'll tell you, I hate conflict. I grew up in at times where it was very tumultuous. There were all kinds of things. And I felt like sometimes I was trying to calm the storm, to be that go-between, to remove conflict because I felt conflict was bad. But I often think that sometimes when you try to squelch conflict, you don't get to better resolution, but instead you kind of keep it at bay. But your life's work or some of your work has been poured into your book, Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate, When Negotiating Makes You Nervous. I think a lot more people need to hear about your work. Tell us a little bit more about why you wrote this book.
1: So I've been teaching negotiation for about 25 years. And over this time, I've come to the conclusion that people need to learn strategies. They need to learn skills. They need to learn models and frameworks. They need to practice and prepare. But ultimately, when people actually go to negotiate, very often something gets in the way and they get in their own way and can't negotiate effectively. Wow. They panic. They get nervous. They get excited So very often, it's something on the emotional level that blocks them from being able to use all of those skills and strategies that they've learned. And I realized that the longer I taught, the more I was incorporating concepts from emotional intelligence into my teaching, that the biggest difference between success and failure wasn't knowing what to do. It was being able to do it when you needed to. So Mm. let me give you an example. I was a lifeguard, and I got trained in CPR about four times. But when my wife and I were out at a restaurant, And the guy behind me started choking. I froze. And my wife was the one who did the Heimlich. So it's not that I didn't know how to do the Heimlich. I'd been trained in it. But in that moment, something got in the way and I couldn't use it. I know so many people who want to negotiate for better terms on a deal or want to negotiate with their boss or have to give an employee a difficult review. And they have it all prepared. They have it all written out. And then they go and they choke. And that's what this book is about. It's how to manage your emotions simultaneously as you negotiate so you can actually use the skills you have. Plus, it gives you all these other skills that you can use.
0: You know, I'm just going to go a little bit more into this. Does it mean to separate a negotiation from your emotions or is it to recognize them and acknowledge them? Because I have found people say sometimes don't compartmentalize emotion versus the intellectual work that you need to do, but you need to embrace it and understand why you are emotional because once you recognize what that emotion is, then you can move forward. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So first of all, I think it's very hard to make generalizations because everybody has different emotional makeup. I am sure that there are people who can be quite successful compartmentalizing emotion. I personally can't. So for those people, they should compartmentalize. That's what works for them. But for many people, what I think happens is we say, all right, let's leave our emotions at the door, but then they come into the room anyway because they don't ask us, right? And that's what happens to me. So my contention is that the first thing you need to do is be aware of what's going on. The first tenet of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. If you don't know what's going on with you, you have very little ability to manage your emotions. The second thing is to be able to have some strategies to help you manage your emotions in real time. So they're still there, but they're not driving the bus. It's okay for me to be excited so long as I don't rush into decisions because of my excitement. It's okay for me to be frightened so long as I don't panic and freeze. So emotions aren't bad. They're part of being human. The question is, can you manage them to the point where you're still able to respond to the situation rather than just react to those emotions.
0: Respond and react. That's the difference.
1: Yeah. And in fact, in chapter two of the book, you know, the first framework I give you is something called the emotional response curve, which is a tool that helps you recognize emotions in real time and then slow down time as you negotiate so you can get to the point where you respond rather than react. You know, the way our brain works is that when anything that happens to us, our amygdala fires first, and that's a very powerful, very strong emotional reaction. And then that reaction subsides over time. Meanwhile, our thinking brain, our neocortex, takes a while to catch up. Eventually, it's more powerful, which is what makes us so capable as humans, but it's just slower. It takes a while to get there. So what that means is we need to catch ourselves before we do or say anything we regret, and then give ourselves time for our neocortex to catch up.
0: I love this concept. And gosh, this is so full of amazing insights here. But I I just wanted to share a little bit of story is that, you know, I work with a lot of highly intelligent people, really talented people, whether in the quality or process engineering or food safety. And so often they go in and do a presentation. And then they come away frustrated because they say, I gave you all the information, I blurted out, All the knowledge that I have, I pointed to the chart and they shared a lot of information and sometimes speak really fast. And then they come away with not understanding, why did I not influence or impact the people in the room to take a decision on something? And what I write about in my book on the CEO's compass, and it's coming out later this year, one of the things is developing those people skills, those skills that You assume because they're bright and intelligent, they're going to be able to manage their emotion, be able to get a desired result. But one of the things I talk about is slowing down, picking powerful words, and being very thoughtful, listen more. And when you do speak, speak with intention and speak slowly, because I'll tell you. I'm an East Coast girl that speaks really fast. I have so much on my mind. And if I really let myself go, I'm going to like roll over you because I talk so fast. And it's because I recognize that the brain is firing fast. I intentionally speak a lot slower to manage that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think I coach negotiation. I've been coaching negotiation for over two decades. And I think over this time, the two words I've said, most people are slow down. I, I have made many mistakes negotiating and most of them were in haste.
0: Absolutely. You know, every time I jump on a podcast interview, as much as you and I know each other, I'll tell you, I get a little nervous before reading the script. I've read it many, many times, but I intentionally go slow (laughs) to make sure we don't mess it up because we don't edit too much of this out here. So, you know, I just want to just make an observation about your work. I think your work is really, really important. People need to check out your book to learn more about the skills in negotiation. We're going to come back to a couple questions I have. But when I read through your content. You are so prolific on social media. People need to check out your profile on LinkedIn. You write every single day, a video almost every day. You write a long form post in LinkedIn and you don't always talk about negotiation. But one theme I saw over and over again is you bring up a conflict, you bring up a pain point, but there's always a thread of optimism. And you talk about your childhood or people have said you're always optimistic despite chaos. Tell me more about your writing style and who you are. Optimist? Yeah, the ship is burning, but I see, you know, the sunny day ahead of that. Tell me more.
1: So I teach my students that optimism is a choice and I try to live my life that way. And honestly, I didn't make that up. I learned that from somebody a long time ago. And the concept that you have a choice as to how to look at the world and how to respond to events is absolutely critical. You know, if you've ever read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about a time when he was in a concentration camp and everything was taken away from him, and the only thing left to him was how he responded. And that struck me so much when I read it that I felt like I need to learn something from that. I remember when my grandmother got sick with cancer, she got progressively more limited and progressively sicker. But the one thing she never lost was her optimism. She said, well, I can't walk. I'll learn how to knit. I can't eat. I'll still go out to restaurants and enjoy the atmosphere. I mean, she just, unfortunately, she didn't live very long, but she lived every day. And I don't know how long I'll live. I want to live every day.
0: Wow. You know, if nothing else, when people listen to this conversation, I think there's just a calmness that I'm feeling. You know, you talk about Make sure when you do something or you have a situation, respond versus react and being optimistic because it is a choice. These are beautiful, beautiful insights. But I'd love to ask you some practical questions. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business owner. I do my best to serve people. I put out proposals on here is what I think the value is that I can provide and serve you. And here is the value that I think it's worth. And here is my fee. And then you don't hear from the client. You don't hear from them for a while and you think, oh, did I scare them with my fee? And I'm wondering what are your some thoughts, because there's entrepreneurs listening to that about understanding their value and not shortcutting it or presenting anything less than what you are worth.
1: So I get a lot of calls from people saying, hey, you know, we've heard about you. We're interested in bringing you in for a negotiation workshop. And my first question to them is, why? Why do you want a (laughs) negotiation workshop? And let's pretend you did one and it was wonderful. What's changed as a result? So before I even answer their question, I can spend an hour on the phone with them finding out what problem they're trying to solve. And then the next thing I'll do is tell them, well, based on what you've told me, here's what I think might serve your needs best. So we don't even get into the fee conversation until we've talked for a long time about what problem they're trying to solve and what solution might best fit that problem. And what I found is that most of the time, by the time we've gotten to the fee, it's almost irrelevant because they're so focused on solving the problem and so bought into the solution that I proposed that that's the main event.
0: That is such powerful advice. And first of all, thank you, because you validated my approach. I start with the relationship, getting to know the person and the value that they bring to the table, and then trying to find the connection between what I do and how I can serve them. I would say 99% of the time, by the time I present my proposal, it's like, okay, when can you start? Or we're not ready now. Never talk about the fee. So I think people sometimes get caught up in their head that they're not going to like me. What fee should I charge? Start with the conversation and the problem you can solve.
1: Yeah. I work with a lot of salespeople and I have to remind them, nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about your product. (laughs) Nobody cares about your company. The only thing they care about is their problem and they're looking for a solution. And if you can understand their needs... And also people make emotional buying decisions, not rational buying decisions. So if you can connect with them on an emotional level and get them to feel like you are listening, you have understood them, and you have some ideas that could help them, the rest goes a lot easier. You know, I think if people focus on the fee, if people focus on the cost, if people start thinking of me as something that costs, they're not likely to hire me. what they need to think about is what is the cost of not getting help? What is the cost to them of continuing the way that they've been going? Which is why I really try to sit with them in their world, trying to understand their problem. I do have to say that this has changed for me a little bit over time. When I was starting out, I, for lack of a better word, was a lot more desperate for business, right? Now I've been in business for 25 years. I'm taking a much more relaxed approach. But You know, speaking to your entrepreneurs, I can tell you that I was a weird one right from day one. I decided I didn't need the pressure. So I decided to give myself a three to five year time horizon. If I met you on a plane and I thought, huh, Deb's going to be a great prospect. I was hoping to get your business sometime in the next three to five years. So there was never any pressure from me or never any pressure felt by me. We just created a conversation from that great conversation came a relationship and Three and a half years from now, all of a sudden you have a need and I'm the person you're going to turn to. And I got to tell you, the first few years were rough, (laughs) right? But once you build up a head of steam, the people I work with today are people I met five years ago. And you just keep stoking the pipeline. You can never rest on your laurels. You can never feel like, all right, yeah, my business is good. I don't need to keep selling. I have the expectation that my biggest client might drop off the face of the earth for reasons completely unrelated to me. So I'm always building the pipeline. I'm always interacting with new clients. And it's true. Sometimes things come and go. On the other hand, you know, I do work with companies for 10 to 15, 20 years. So I think it's good to have some perspective. It's good to take the pressure off yourself by not worrying about making the sale today. I understand we need cash today, but to be panicked about that doesn't actually help you get the cash today. If you can think long-term, you get the short-term stuff too.
0: Oh. Oh, that was a really good one there. (laughs) I want to come back to something you said about, you know, people have to have the courage to decide, do I want to make the investment now to solve the problem or perhaps let it fester, let it start, I don't know, burning a little bit until you are in crisis and then you have to bring in somebody fast. I talk about that a little bit in my book is leaders have to if nothing else, it's not a weakness, but if you need external help or somebody to teach a skill or, you know, build up that bench strength, have the courage to say, let's do it now before it becomes a crisis.
1: That's very hard for people. You know, <laughs> an equivalent example is the, the decision to go to therapy, hmm. right? There are so many people I know who really would benefit from therapy and they know it, but when they actually come to do it, they don't. There are so many barriers right? You have to find someone. You have to find someone you trust. You have to invest money. You have to invest time. You have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to admit to yourself on some level that you weren't able to do it by yourself. And you add all these factors. And even people who do go to therapy sometimes go three years later than they should have.
0: It's almost about negotiating with yourself, you know, that's an interesting thing that I'm I'm just thinking about is that we talk about how we externally negotiate with the world, our circumstance, people, and the environment. But, you know, perhaps there's a more critical element here in negotiating with ourselves, giving ourselves permission, having that conversation in our head, should we or shouldn't we? I'm wondering, do you ever talk about self negotiation to be able to break through those barriers and give yourself permission to move forward with something or not or make a difficult decision?
1: The first half of Collie Wobbles is all about that, actually. Okay. You know, I have a whole chapter, and they're talking about our fears, how to overcome our fears. People enter negotiations with three major areas of fear. The first one is tangible hurt. You know, I'm afraid that if I ask for more, I'll get nothing. If I push for a better deal, I might get no deal at all. Mm-hmm. all right, you ask people. you know, People often self-limit when they negotiate, and I ask them, so why didn't you ask for more? And their biggest fear was that the other person would pack up their bag and go away. So that's fear of tangible hurt. There's also fear of relationship damage. Mm. Almost half the people I talk to and I ask them, they say, I want a promotion, but I'm afraid to go to my boss. I'm like, what are you afraid of? And they say, I'm afraid of damaging the relationship with my boss. I got to tell you, if you've been a good employee, asking for a promotion isn't going to damage the relationship with your boss. But the fear of that is huge. And a third thing that they're afraid of is emotional hurt, some just emotional pain you know, getting rejected is not fun. It can be very painful for people and rejection's a part of negotiation. Sometimes negotiations make you act in ways that aren't your best self. So people feel like, Ooh, I was kind of a jerk and they feel the pain of that. So being aware of your fears and then negotiating down those fears so that they're there, but they're not dominating you. That's a big part. Chapter 6 of the book is all about narrative. It's actually one of my favorite chapters that I ever wrote. And the idea is that we're always telling ourselves stories. We're telling ourselves stories about ourselves, about the other person, about the situation, and that the narratives we tell ourselves are predominantly responsible for our experience of a situation. Mm -hmm. See, I may not be actually afraid of talking to you in a webinar, right? But I might have a narrative. And the narrative is that people won't like me. Or the narrative might be that I am less of an expert than the other people you've had on your show. Those narratives that I have in my mind have a huge impact on how I experience things and how I interact with others. And what I work with people on is becoming more aware of their narratives. Because here's the deal. From before you were born, other people started imposing narratives on you. Okay? And then as you were a child... They started telling you those narratives and throughout your growth into adulthood, you were bombarded by other people's narratives, which you eventually absorbed. And now that there's this little version of them repeating those narratives in your head. But now you're an adult and as an adult, you have a choice whether to continue being the victim of the narratives that were given to you growing up or to make choices about what of those narratives to keep and what of those narratives to rewrite And being conscious of that and rewriting your own narratives is a huge part of negotiating with yourself.
0: And that was the beautiful nugget of all of this. And Moshe, I can't thank you enough. You know, we do this podcast to provide value to our audience, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs, the leaders that need a support system. But I will tell you, I am grateful for all of this wisdom Narratives, oh my, we could probably do another program on that because I, through my human-centric leadership and mentoring others, I start with the narratives and try to understand when did it start? Who said that about you? Why do you own that? And I will say some people have come to tears when they realize that they don't have to own it anymore. Beautiful you know, we got to reel this in. We could probably talk another half hour or so. But, you know, are there any last thoughts for the people in my audience? Again, CEOs, senior leaders, entrepreneurs, emerging leaders, any other thoughts uh, about negotiation and mediation?
1: So aside from slowing down, probably the second biggest piece of advice that I give people is to listen. The best negotiators spend twice as much time listening as talking. And Really listening to understand, developing a curious attitude about the other person, not a judgmental one. And the third thing is prepare. Most negotiations fail before they begin. You need to spend more time preparing. Now, in terms of your particular audience, what I would say is it's not just for you as the entrepreneur or the CEO. It's when you look at your team, can you teach them or give them the message to slow down, to listen, and to prepare And if you can do just those three things, you're already going to give them a lot of value.
0: And if they don't have those skills or the capacity to do that, how best can people connect with you because they could learn so much from you and have the courage to act now versus wait?
1: So the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, www.negotiatingtable.com. As you said, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Look for Moshe, M-O-S-H-E, Negotiation, and I'll pop right up. And like you say, I post every day. I do an article. I do videos. And you can always email me, Moshe com. I respond.
0: Okay, Moshe, you have been an amazing guest. I'm grateful for the introduction. I'm grateful for maintaining the relationship. Thank you so much for being a fantastic guest today.
1: And thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. For more information about our consulting or coaching services, please visit my website at dropinceo.com or visit our Drop-In CEO Facebook group to continue the conversation. Now go out, lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.